0: Moses' life was not a dull life, not by any stretch. In fact, uh, the season of Moses' life that seemed to be the most intense began in his 80s. At 80 years old, he confronted Pharaoh of Egypt. In his 80s, he leads the Israelites out of Egypt and toward Mount Sinai. After 11 months at Mount Sinai, the people begin traveling toward the Promised Land. In Moses' 80s, he experiences rebellious responses from these Israelites who were skeptical and fearful for different reasons. It's in his 80s that Moses experienced tensions with his siblings more serious than ever before. He had two older siblings, a brother named Aaron and a sister named Miriam. Before Numbers chapter 12, the Bible has introduced us to these characters. In Exodus chapter 2, a few months after Moses was born, Pharaoh had issued an edict that all the newborn male Hebrew babies would be thrown into the Nile River. Moses was protected by his family, and at a particular strategic time, his mother placed Moses in a basket and put him beside the bank of the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter discovers Moses. It's Moses' sister, Miriam, who approaches her and suggests that perhaps one of the Hebrew mothers could nurse him. And Moses is, in the providence of God, reunited with his mother at the direction of the Pharaoh household. Aaron appears in Exodus chapter 4. The Lord has told Moses, Aaron would be a support for you, a mouthpiece for you. And Moses and Aaron would go before Pharaoh in their 80s to confront the king of Egypt, let my people go. Miriam appears again in Exodus 15. The Red Sea crossing has just taken place. The people of God have burst out in hymns of praise to God, and in Exodus 15:20, Miriam is called a prophetess, the sister of Aaron. In Exodus 15:21, she sings a song about the defeat of the Egyptian soldiers and horses that had just pursued the people. Here's what she's saying: Sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. People of God had been vindicated. Enemies of God had been overcome. And Miriam, a providence among the people, sings in praise to God. In the book of Numbers, we're going to see these two siblings challenge the leadership and authority of Moses. This is no light thing. Israelites have challenged Moses earlier. They have been skeptical and fearful earlier. Multiple stories in Exodus and Numbers revealed this. The event in Numbers 12 is personal on a deeper level. Because Aaron is his older brother and Miriam is his older sister. And they themselves as older siblings occupy a role not just of siblings. Miriam is a prophetess among the Israelites. And someone whose reputation and honor is recognized By Exodus 15, at least. Aaron, who is he among the people of Israel? Oh, not just the brother of Moses. He's the high priest. He's the high priest of the Israelites. There's only one high priest at a time, and his name is Aaron. It is these two, more than just siblings of Moses, the positions they occupy among the people of God raise the situation in terms of horror and shock. This is not the first time the Lord has been tested. This is not the first time people have expressed concern and fear. And they continue to test the Lord and do things that are rebellious in various levels, both corporately as a nation and even with individuals like Miriam and Aaron. This is the third test, the third wilderness test since leaving Mount Sinai. In Numbers 11, 1-3, they complained, the people did, about their hardships, about their misfortunes and the journey. In Numbers eleven four 4, to the end of that chapter, they complained about the food, they craved meat. Here in Numbers chapter 12, the complaint, the murmuring comes from a prophetess and the high priest of Israel. In verses 1 and 2, the opposition from Miriam and Aaron is laid out. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. That is not burying the lead. Right there in verse 1 in the opening phrase, we're sort of taken aback. What did he just say that the people speaking against Moses were Miriam and Aaron. They speak against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. And the opposition from Miriam and Aaron seems to operate on two fronts. First, a concern about Moses' relationship in a marriage. A marriage to a Cushite woman, and we'll reflect on that in a moment. And then in verse 2, something that doesn't seem to be related, at least on the surface, to the Cushite union but a concern in verse 2 that, uh, hey, is Moses really the only person the Lord is speaking to, disclosing himself through, making known, revelation? I mean, hasn't, hasn't he after all spoken through us also? And, and these seem to be a rising set of reasons, maybe even more unstated, for them to begin pushing against, subtly but not always so subtly, the leadership of Moses. Moses. Here is an alliance then between the high priest and his sister, a prophetess, against their brother, their younger brother, Moses. The first uh, reason given to us in verse 1 has to do with Moses' marriage. This is a challenge stimulated by a union Moses has with a Cushite woman. We know of Moses being married once, earlier in Exodus chapter 2. He married a woman named Zipporah. Zipporah was from the land of Midian, a region east of uh, Egypt. And before Sinai. And therefore, scholars have wondered here in verse 1, are we dealing with the same woman? Is this Midianite also here the Cushite woman? And that's because in some ancient documents, Cush and Midian seem to be associated together because of their proximity. And it is possible then to refer to the Cushite wife or Moses' Midianite wife is really to reference the same woman. We might say that that's even the likely leaning here. Because no other chapter tells us that Moses took a second wife, though it's possible there's a story just unnarrated. But whoever this is, why is Miriam concerned? Why is Aaron concerned about a non-Israelite union? It may have to do with Numbers 11. We saw last week in Numbers 11 that non-Israelites... Began to murmur and grumble, and spread murmur and grumbling like a spiritual virus among the camp, and that there was not only a judgment of the Lord that ended in chapter eleven. It's possible that Israelites said, "Well, are non-Israelites going to pose any further threats?" You know, Moses. You know who he's married to. He's not married from so- to somebody from the from the line of Jacob. He's married to a Cushite woman. And, and, you know, God's got him at the head of the people. I mean, he's leading the people. And, you know, is she going to be among the rabble or the mixed multitude that Numbers 11 had identified? Maybe they're wondering then about the future of the people with Moses's union. Is this really something that could be trusted? And, And the reason, too, is in Exodus 18, we learn that Moses's wife, if it's Zipporah here, Zipporah has not been with Moses the entire time that Miriam and Aaron have been. We learned that Zipporah had recently re-entered Moses' life. Moses' father-in-law had taken Zipporah and the child away. Miriam and Aaron, in other words, do not know her. Here they are, siblings of Moses, and this is not a woman that they have any deep relationship with at all. And that... Their past with Moses has gaps in it, right? He grows up in Pharaoh's household. He spends 40 years in Midian. It's not as if Moses has the same experience with his siblings that Miriam and Aaron would have had in a household growing up together. That wasn't Moses' life. And here you have a man that they are still perhaps getting to know, and now in their 80s. And here is a wife Moses is married to who is a non-Israelite. And they think, ah, you know, I'm not sure about this. In verse 2, has the Lord even indeed spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he, hasn't he spoken through us also? All of this accumulating, it seems, to say, should he really be the one leading? Miriam's a high priest. Aaron, I'm sorry, Mo, Moses, uh, his brother, Aaron is a high priest. Miriam is a prophetess. And with such positions occupied within the community, maybe they would think, well, therefore, Moses, would he be given any greater leadership or greater emphasis among the community? Now, right after verses one and two, there is a character statement of Moses that at first makes the reader scratch their head and and say, why do I need to know this? Why is this stated? In verse three, we're told now the man Moses was very meek. More than all people who were on the face of the earth. Why is verse 3 in Numbers chapter 12? I would encourage us to consider that what we've just read in verses 1-2 to is a statement of presumption about leadership and role that Miriam and Aaron have. Has the Lord only spoken through Moses? Hasn't He spoken through us also? And that that's not a self-presumption that occupies Moses' mind. If you recall from Exodus chapter three, the Lord makes himself known to Moses in a bush that was on fire on Mount Sinai and said, I want you to go to Pharaoh and you tell him, let my people go. And Moses said, you must have been looking for somebody else. I'm not looking for this job. I'm not volunteering for this position. I don't even speak well. He says, Lord, you're going to have to go to someone else. And yet it was the Lord's appointed providence that Moses be the man. Moses was not seeking this role among the Israelites. He was, if you will, meek and humble in comparison. So this is a strong statement. I grant you that in verse 3 about the people on the face of the land or the earth. And it's a way, I think, of talking about Miriam and Aaron's presumption, which if we read the stories of Exodus, that doesn't characterize Moses. Moses. Moses is actually quite overwhelmed with the situation. Do you remember from last Sunday morning in verses 11 to 15 of Numbers 11? He he is so overwhelmed and feels so burdened by the people of Israel. This is not the language you see coming from Miriam and Aaron. Moses' character, his dependence on the Lord, his humility before God is certainly not sinless. So we grant that even from Numbers 11, we can see Moses is a flawed leader. But he's not seeking this position with some kind of zeal and vigor as Aaron Aaron, Aaron and Miriam. That's their names together. Aaron and Miriam might have been seeking with presumption. We would wonder as a reader, how is the Lord going to respond? At the end of verse two, there's that small line and the Lord heard it. And of course, it wouldn't be the case that he wouldn't. It wouldn't be the case that he couldn't. But the narrator is saying that what Miriam and Aaron are perhaps allying together, all that they do is done before the Lord. And they ought to tremble at that. That their words of rebellion or undermining the leadership of Moses, no matter how the Lord has used Miriam and Aaron to go against the appointed deliverer who was Moses out of Egypt, that's no small thing. The Lord heard it. What is the Lord's response? In verses 4-9, to nine, we see the response of the Lord. It says, suddenly the Lord said to Moses. Oh, you, get the, you get the impression that no passing of time is taking place here. It's not like lengths of time. Well, sometime weeks later. There's no uh, passing of the story into the future by weeks. There's a suddenness to what is happening next. He says to Moses, to Aaron, to Miriam, come out you three to the tent of meeting. Now the conversation between Miriam and Aaron and that they're saying, it doesn't tell us they said it to Moses. It just says they're speaking against Moses with these words. And the Lord hears it. He calls all three of them together in verse 4 to the tent of meeting, which was the place where God would make himself known to Moses in cloud and in voice. The three of them came out. So yes, the Lord heard it. He told them to come. And what are they going to do? Decide not to? I mean, this is like being brought into the courtroom with some sort of verdict and and sentence being declared. It may feel like it's like, all right, here we're going to go. I bet they walked really slowly. I thought, man, this is really dragging by. I don't want to get to that place. (laughs) Miriam and Aaron and Moses all come. They're going to face the one who is righteous and holy. And in verse 5, the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent. I think we're to envision here a a, a vertical cloud-like manifestation. We have seen clouds associated with the presence of the Lord in Exodus and in Numbers. The cloud that led the, the people from Egypt. A pillar of cloud and fire by night. And then you see in the tabernacle cloud hovering over it and then to move when the tabernacle is to be disassembled and transported a cloud is associated with the presence of the lord here's something unique here in verse five this pillar of cloud appears in a vertical manner right in front of the entrance of the tabernacle and aaron and miriam both come forward Now, we know that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in love in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers when they're dealing with the Israelite nation. And yet we also know that there are stories in Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers where people have defied the Lord, rebelled against the Lord, and their sin has reaped ruin and destruction. And and so the reader would not be far off the mark to wonder, is this the last place Miriam and Aaron are going to go? Here they are being called before the Lord who is holy and righteous. They have the important roles that they've occupied in the community and they're defying the Lord and rebelling against Moses. I wonder if their positions are about to have an opening. And in verse 5, they stand there before the Lord and He says in verse 6, Hear my words. One of the scenes that comes to mind is out of the book of Job. When the friends of Job have spoken foolishly, And Job has tried in even his frailty and even in his flawed speech from time to time show faithfulness and dependence on the Lord. At the very end of the book of Job, in Job 38, the final string of speech words given is from the Lord. And it says the Lord appears from the whirlwind and says, brace yourself, I will speak to you and you will listen to me. And I have this scene in my own mind of here you have not a description of a whirlwind, but a vertical cloud like substance. And the voice of the Lord comes from the cloud and says, you will hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. He's faithful in all my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. What is happening that's distinguishing in this this language here from just a general prophet and someone like Moses? Well, God says to to them in verse 6, If there's a prophet, they're a prophet because I have made myself known. A prophet is a mouthpiece of the Lord. And we have noticed in the Old Testament prior to Numbers 12 that God had made himself known to people in dreams and in visions. You can think of people like Abraham in Genesis, or the character Joseph in Genesis 37, and in several other places in the Joseph story. You could fast forward in the biblical narrative to people like Daniel, a prophet in the book that bears his name, or prophets like Isaiah or Ezekiel. People who are mouthpieces of the Lord experience the revelatory word of the Lord in dreams and in visions. And God says, yes, that's what I'm doing. I, I make known myself. But something is even different with Moses. He is a prophet, but there's something about Moses that's even more distinct. I don't think he's less than a prophet. He's being described in ways that elevate his leadership among the people. And if God has elevated Moses, he doesn't need to be diminished by Miriam and Aaron. And in verse 7, he says, Not so with my servant Moses, he's faithful in all my house, and with him I speak mouth to mouth clearly. Which means the primary way that the prophet Moses has experienced the encounter with the Lord is not by dream and vision, but by a manifest presence of God and voice from the cloud. This is the case in Exodus 21 and following when Moses goes to Mount Sinai, where he will meet with the Lord. In other words, there is a place as well as a theophany, a divine encounter, That's different from just dream and vision. We wouldn't say that's not some kind of encounter with the Lord. This is different with Moses. God has been making himself known to Moses with even greater clarity. In other words, someone might have had a dream from the Lord, such as Daniel or other prophets, and needed that dream interpreted. You could have a lack of clarity. I think that's what's meant in verse 8. With him, Moses, I speak mouth-to-mouth, and not in riddles, clearly. I speak, in other words, in a way where I will be understood without a need for an interpreter of a dream or a vision. Moses has a kind of clarity with the people that he can say to them, Thus says the Lord upon this mountain, Build this tabernacle, here are these instructions for sacrifices, here's what the roles of the high priest will be, and it's not because there were apocalyptic imagery that needed to be interpreted. Or rather, Moses has encounters with the Lord that God says are, if you will, mouth to mouth, clearly not in riddles. Did you notice in verse seven, Moses was described as faithful in all my house. Now, house is operating on a couple levels. The house of the Lord is in one sense the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the dwelling place of Yahweh where He has instructed its construction. He has instructed it to not only be constructed but transported to the promised land. But house here isn't a reference to the physical tabernacle with its frames and curtains and garments of skin and layers of skins. This is instead a reference to the Israelites as a house. Because when Moses learns from the Lord what would be clearly revealed mouth to mouth and not in riddles... He comes to the people of God and the word of the Lord will over and over again say, Moses said to the people so and so. Or God will say, Moses, say to the Israelites so and so, such and such. Moses is faithful in all my house because the people of Israel are a house and Moses serves them. He's the servant of Yahweh. You say, well, wait a second, is no one else in the Israelite community a servant of Yahweh? That's not what we are to imply here. It is to explicitly say Moses is called by God a servant of God. It's not a self-designation Moses has said. You know, when I think of myself as Moses, I really think of myself as a servant of Yahweh. This has come from Yahweh's own mouth. My servant Moses. And he's faithful in all my house. Moses is faithful because he listens to Yahweh. And he cares for the people. He leads the people. He listens to the people. He prays for the people. He instructs the people in light of all the tasks. God has given to Moses. God says of Moses, he's a faithful servant among the house of the Israelites. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that Moses is described as faithful. If God says... He is a faithful servant. Miriam and Aaron are speaking against the faithful servant of Yahweh. It's not as if God says, Miriam and Aaron, I really am glad you both spoke up. Moses is an unfaithful servant anyway. I've been looking for someone to replace that particular leadership. Instead, Moses is a faithful leader among the Israelites. And Aaron and Miriam are wrong to have done what they've done. Moses is said of in verse 8, to be one who beholds the form of the Lord. Nothing light about that. On Mount Sinai, to be one who ascends the mountain, 80 years old, going to encounter the glorious presence of God with thunder and cloud and smoke and fire. Moses goes to behold the form of the Lord. We're told in Exodus thirty three eleven that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. That's amazing language. Exodus thirty three eleven, And then in the next chapter, in Exodus 34, 5, the Lord descends in a cloud and stood with Moses and proclaimed his own name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God says to Moses, this is who I am. And he has appeared in some sort of manifest and glorious way. Moses has beheld things. He has beheld things that not any Israelite has simply beheld. And he has beheld these things. has been a faithful servant in Yahweh's house. And Yahweh himself has said this of Moses. And Aaron and Miriam have said. You know, does God just speak only through Moses? I mean, hasn't he spoken through us also? It's not as if God has not used Aaron or Miriam. But they are diminishing the role of Moses and in danger of allowing their positions and influence to cause greater confusion among the people. Can you imagine the confusion among the Israelites if the high priest Aaron would side against Yahweh's servant Moses? And the people are like, I guess we've got a line in the sand now. Am I going to follow Aaron or am I going to follow Moses? What a horrible situation that would result from that divisiveness. But it's the question at the end of verse 8 that really gets me here. After saying that Moses is faithful and that God speaks to him in such a direct and clear way for the people, he says to Miriam and Aaron in verse 8, Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Oh, what a question. Moses has such a direct Communion and fellowship with the Lord. That Miriam and Aaron should factor that in. In their speech about the leadership of Moses. Why then were you not afraid? The idea of speaking against Moses, the servant of Yahweh, who was faithful according to Yahweh, that notion ought to have filled Miriam and Aaron with fear. The idea in their minds ought to have been, the last thing we will do is defy the Lord. Because it seems that to defy God's appointed and faithful servant would be to defy Yahweh. Why is it such a big deal that they speak against Moses? Because if they turn against Moses, they will be turning against the Lord. The weightiness of it must be felt in this way. If they turn against Moses, and if the people turn against Moses, they will have turned against the Lord who raised up Moses, sent out Moses, and is delivering them through Moses. Why then were you not afraid? Which says they weren't afraid, and they should have been. They weren't thinking this through. They hadn't factored in all they needed to be factored in for their speech and for their responses to Moses. They ought to have been terrified to utter those things to one another in the hearing of the Lord, and yet they weren't afraid. They did it anyway. They should have trembled at the idea of opposing Moses and were told in verse 9 that the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. I think that simply means that whatever presence of a cloud was before them was gone. And so that they could, as since, say, this meeting has been adjourned. We survived. Okay? We were not struck down after defying the Lord, after speaking so carelessly and without proper fear of Yahweh. The anger of the Lord was kindled against them. And in verse 10, something is noticed. Verse 10, the punishment of Miriam is recorded. When the cloud removed from over the tent, Behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. In other words, the narrator not only tells us in verse 10 that Miriam was leprous, this wasn't something that could be hidden. Aaron turned, and sure enough, Aaron beholds indeed his sister is leprous. Leprosy in the ancient Near East was often thought of as a divine punishment. The phrase, like snow tells us of a very white complexion that her skin now had. It was visible. And she didn't walk into the tabernacle courtyard looking that way. She walked out that way though. We're prepared by the book of Leviticus for various regulations and instructions about those who have a skin disease for a time. They are ritually unfit to approach the Lord. So Miriam must immediately be removed from the tabernacle. She, after all, has now been rendered ritually unfit. And not only must she be removed from the tabernacle, because the Israelite community was to remain ritually fit to approach the tabernacle, they were to live clean, that's the word that uh, Leviticus gives, Miriam has been rendered unclean. And she will be unclean until her condition is restored and overcome. She must be removed not only from the tabernacle, but from the camp. We're told then of the punishment of Miriam. The cloud is removed. Miriam has leprous. Aaron, her brother, sees it. And then there is a plea. In verses 11 and 12. The plea from Aaron to Moses. And one reason Aaron might turn to Moses that Moses might intercede, is because with the cloud now departed, Aaron might conclude that Moses is the one I must turn to now. Oh, my Lord, he says, which is simply a term there of respect. It's not confusing who's Yahweh and who's not. But Aaron is simply saying, oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we've done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. Verses 11 and 12 are the statements of plea and deep concern and alarm from Aaron's heart. He is dismayed at what he sees. He's concerned about the suffering that she has and no doubt would continue to have. And with deep emotion and deep pleading, "O my Lord, do not punish us. Do you notice here what they acknowledge? Aaron says, we have done foolishly. If the Lord has said that Moses is my faithful servant, and with him I have dealt with clearly, more so than just with any prophet that might have dream and vision, Aaron realizes their words had been completely out of line. We have done foolishly. What we read about in chapter 12, 1 and 2 was not Aaron and Miriam being wise together, but acting and speaking foolishly. We have done foolishly and have sinned. They believe that not only were their words about Moses unwise, but they have transgressed against the Lord. Aaron here is filled then with an acknowledgement, and we can use the word confession. A confession of the transgression. We were foolish. We have sinned. Do not punish us. That's a negative way of saying show us mercy. Do not punish us. Is another way of pleading for mercy from the Lord. And he's talking to Moses. Because time and again. When Israelites have done something. That has seemed as they are turning against the Lord. Moses will intercede for them. What is Aaron hoping? I don't think it's too far for us to see as interpreters. Aaron is hoping Moses. Will once again. Intercede for rebels. And that God in his steadfast love, would show mercy. He even uses a picture in chapter 12, verse 12, in the hearing of Moses, Let her, Miriam, not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And he's thinking there of the grave circumstances of the stillborn child, where the birth of the stillborn child doesn't have the signs of life. But instead, the signs and look of death. And here in verse 12, he knows that in the ancient world, someone who has been stricken with leprosy outwardly seems to be wasting away. As if they are walking around with the forces and signs of death upon their very bodies. And Moses' brother Aaron says, Moses, let her not be this way. Have mercy on us. We have sinned. We have been foolish. The question is, what will Moses do? He doesn't look at Aaron and say, well, you did this to yourself. I'm leaving. <laughs> Can you imagine the kinds of responses Moses might have said? Well, I bet you'll think twice before you speak against the Lord's faithful servant in Yahweh's house. You know, there's a number of things we might imagine. Moses, it is flesh. Thinking and saying, he cries out to the Lord. And in verse 13, oh God, please heal her. Please. This is a short prayer, it's to the point. The gist of it is, oh God, heal her. It's an intercessory prayer. Moses is praying on behalf of Miriam. He thinks Aaron is right on. We need to pray for mercy. Nobody's deserving of mercy. We pray to the Lord who is merciful. This is a short prayer. It's an intercessory prayer. It's a pleading prayer. Two times in the original language and brought over in the ESV is the word please. Moses cried out to the Lord. Not only is Aaron moved deeply with emotion, Moses' prayer is full of emotion. He's not indifferent. He's not neutral. He doesn't have a callous response. He is a man undone, crying out to God, would you please heal her? Pleading, concise, intercessory. And Moses' sister Miriam will be restored. But, first, there will be a period of seven days where her and Aaron's speech against against Moses will have a visible and temporal consequence. The response of the Lord in verse 14 says, the Lord says to Moses, if her father had but spit in her face, should she not be shamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. Now in verse 14, a question for the Bible reader is, what is brought up here? This father, if he had not but spit in her face, should she not be shamed? What does that mean? And how does that connect to her being outside the camp a week? In verse 14, a question is being raised that was apparently a commonly known ancient Near Eastern response to a high-handed rebellious act from a child. And if a child had flagrantly and rebelliously and high-handedly done something in the family of such grave offense, there is a custom of spittle from the parent. To express the scorn and contempt upon that grave, rebellious, and offensive act. And a removal from the family for a period of days. That it's of such grave consequence and seriousness in the household and socially that it could not be ignored. It would not be for the good of the child... And it would not be for the good of the the parent or the household if such grave offense and serious transgression were ignored. And he says here, okay, Moses, what if this had been the situation? Wouldn't it be fitting for such a consequence or experience of the seriousness of that transgression to be known and understood? Then therefore, let her, Miriam, be shut outside the camp seven days. Because nobody should think that what Miriam did wasn't serious. That what Miriam and Aaron were deliberating about and questioning, that nobody should look at them and think, well, I I guess the Lord didn't think that was any big deal at all, I guess. It was of such a serious nature that he gives an earthly illustration to say, then therefore given that Moses is the faithful servant in Yahweh's house and that Yahweh is Yahweh, she shall be shut outside the camp seven days and after that brought in again. This is mercy. She is not struck down. She is not going to be excluded, but temporarily. And yet readers will ask, why is it that Miriam and not also Aaron some of you are probably wondering this. You think that was exactly my question. Why is it that Aaron didn't say, "Why are Miriam and I struggling with leprosy?" Now, listen. The text does not tell us, but I want you to consider a couple things. It is not often in the ancient world where someone, where somebody, as a, a female in a role of influence among a group like the Israelites. Would be given attention or honor. And Miriam had a position of honor and reputation in the camp. A prophetess according to Exodus 15. And her name appears first in the story. Numbers 12 says. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses. And it is significant in ancient documents. To see orders of names from time to time, especially in the ancient world, if women were widely overlooked. Here's a biblical story where Miriam is named first and perhaps the instigator of the whole thing. Aaron is the one who speaks words of confession and admission about what they have done foolishly and sinned. And we have no word from Miriam after verse 2. So some have said and suggested, and perhaps, if Miriam has instigated all of this, and Aaron has recognized the foolishness of what they have done, that Miriam's exclusion is sufficient, perhaps that would explain the scenario. Consider one other factor. There's only one high priest in Israel. And it's Aaron. And how often is work done by the priests... At the tabernacle with offerings and sacrifices. Morning and evening, morning and evening, morning and evening. You don't put a sign on the high priest's office closed for the next seven days. Aaron, if he were rendered unclean, would be unable to perform the single and unique works and oversight that the high priest of Israel would have. By having mercy on Aaron, there is mercy shown on the Israelite community. Because they need to approach the tabernacle and they need a high priest of Israel who will mediate for them. So as we wonder perhaps as readers, why is it that Miriam has experienced what she has done, even if for seven days? And why is it that Aaron hasn't considered those various features and factors that might get us toward an explanation? The last part of the passage tells us the fulfillment of what would happen to somebody with a skin disease such as hers. In verse 15, so Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. You know, I tell you, there's something I love about the end of verse 15 here. Nobody left without her and said, Miriam, I hope you can catch up. Nobody left the camp. And you know why the people didn't leave? Because the cloud did not depart from the tabernacle. We're told in Exodus and in Numbers, whenever the cloud departed... The people would depart, but as the cloud would remain over the tabernacle, the people would remain. The Lord was not leaving Miriam, not for one moment. She would be excluded for those seven days and be brought right back into the fold. The people would have a grave sense of, okay, something serious had taken place. And that hopefully the foolishness and sinfulness by a high priest and a prophetess would be something that would further inculcate among the people a rightful fear of the Lord. That it is not safe to turn against the Lord. And that in those rebellious episodes, that's exactly what the people had been doing. verse 15 does report a bit of an irony. You see, Miriam and Aaron in chapter 12, 1 and 2 had spoken about and against the Cushite woman and about Moses' leadership and whether God had only spoken through him and hasn't he also used and spoken through us. And the implication, if carried far enough, would be if Moses' union has compromised his leadership, then he and even she should be excluded from that role. We're worried about that union. The effect of this, though, in verse 15... Moses' Cushite wife is not the one excluded. Miriam becomes the one excluded. And that's not where she thought her murmuring would lead. But that is what happened in verse 15. Moses is not shut out. Miriam is shut out. And then, after the seven days, she is brought in again, and the people will resume their march. And after that, in verse 16... They set out from Hazeroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. Paran will be the setting in that wilderness area for Numbers 13 and 14. It's the next phase of the journey. In God's redemptive plan, Moses is meant in this story and in the others to shadow and typify the person and work of the Lord Jesus. He is a type of Christ. One who has come to lead the people and deliver them from slavery. And Moses experienced a knowledge and fellowship with God that was different. That was escalated in the time of the birth and the incarnation of the Lord Jesus. I want you to hear the writer of Hebrews reflect on this. Hebrews 1 says, long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. That included Moses, that included Daniel and Isaiah, and Abraham and David, and all the other prophets. They had dreams and they had visions. And Moses even got to behold the form of the Lord. Well, in Hebrews 1 it says, In these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom, He created the world. You know what it never says of Moses? Don't speak against my service, Moses, through whom I created the world. Never said of Moses. It says this of the Son in Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. That's never said of Moses. Listen, Moses occupied a great role in Israel's history. Numbers 12 never says Aaron and Miriam. What were you thinking? He is the radiance of the glory of God. No, but the Son is... The exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then we're told that though Moses had perceived a form of the Lord in some kind of glorious manifestation. John's gospel tells us in John 1.14 that the word that was with God and was God became flesh. And then in John 1.18 no one has seen God but the only God who is at the Father's side. The Son of God is God from God and has come to make known God. And this is not the Son coming to be incarnate to receive revelation that He doesn't know, but instead the Son who is from the Father to make God known. This is escalating far from the experience and life of Moses, as important as Moses' role was. And then we see in light of Numbers 12, That Christ is the fullness of the glory of God. The Word that has become flesh. Glory which Moses longed to see. God has testified about His Son. You see, the reason it was foolish and sinful for Miriam and for Aaron to do what they did is because of who Moses was. And how much more significant for those who were the contemporaries of Jesus To reject him despite his many works. For the religious leaders to ally against them in their foolishness and sin. The father says at the son's baptism in Matthew 3. This is my beloved son. In John 5.33. John the Baptist bore truthful witness we're told. Jesus says in John 5.36. That my mighty works testify about who I am. Then the writer of Hebrews in chapter 3. Talks about Numbers chapter 12. We've just thought about that chapter this morning. And in Hebrews 3, the writer says, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. But Christ is faithful over all God's house as a son. That's a statement, isn't it? And then the writer says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Talking about the boasting in Christ, hope in Christ, confidence and salvation in Christ alone. The writers say, listen, those who hold those things, those for whom Christ Jesus is their confession, you know who they are? They are the house of God. And you know what the Hebrews writer says? Christ Jesus is faithful over all God's house. He is a perfect shepherd. He leads us and cares for us. He feeds us and loves us. He heeds the prayers of His people in the perfect wisdom of His intercessory work as it would please the Father's will. He is our perfect mediator. He is faithful in all God's house. You see the intercessory role of Moses who would plead on behalf of Aaron and Miriam. That was foreshadowing the greater intercessory work of our mediator Jesus. For we had been allied against the appointed one. But the one that we had been against is indeed our very advocate. He is our redeemer. Our perfect mediator between God and man. And friends, I look at Numbers 12. I see this in the greater storyline of Scripture. The good news that Hebrews tells us about the Son. We should trust Him. Hope in Him. Follow Him. He has come to make God known to us. God from God. Light from light. Very God of very God. It is our confession in the Nicene Creed. Because it is true. Let's stand together as we pray.